Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Jim Crane, an energy research fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute in Houston, Texas. Jim, who worked for many years as a journalist based in Iraq and Dubai, is the author of several books, among them Energy Kingdoms, Oil and Political Survival in the Persian Gulf, published by Columbia University Press. And he's contributed a chapter to When Can Oil Economies Be Deemed Sustainable, published by Palgrave. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Now, look, let's start by you explaining to us what exactly net zero commitments are. Well, net zero doesn't really mean zero emissions, right? So it means you take out as much emissions as you put into the atmosphere. So if you sold, say, you know, a million gallons of gasoline and diesel in your country, say for your trucking industry, uh, you would need to find a way to capture that, the carbon that was released by burning that. So roughly 20 million pounds of CO2 or 10,000 metric tons of CO2. Uh, you'd have to get that out of the atmosphere in some way. Uh, so the, basically, the more you emit, the more you have to offset some other way to get to net zero. Okay, that's that's terrific. That's a very clear definition. So I thank you for that. Now, at COP26, Saudi Arabia announced it would get to net zero by 2060. So, Jim, can you break that down? And And first of all, is that an achievable goal, do you think? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's challenging, but possible, right? Saudi Arabia and, you know, the United Arab Emirates, which also has declared a, a, a net zero goal um, just ahead of the COP, you know, they're both really carbon intensive countries. The UAE is even more, uh, you know, carbon intensive. It's, you know, about 21 tons per capita per year. You know, I think it was in 2020. You know, Saudi Arabia is around 16 per capita, so a bit less, but about the same as the United States on a pretty substantially smaller GDP per capita. So they're, they're, they're both really carbon intensive. So is that just another number that's plucked out of the air and said, here's something that we're going to get to, a paper number? There haven't been many details from either of these countries, uh, you know, on how they're going to get to net zero. In Saudi Arabia, they're touting, and they have been for a while, this circular carbon economy, which you may have heard about. Basically, that involves uh, continuing to burn fossil fuels and then capturing the carbon, at least for now. And, you know, I think soon that's going to mean turning fossil fuels into hydrogen and then burning the hydrogen and sequestering the carbon dioxide that's that's removed from um, making that hydrogen from natural gas, right? And then I think later they wanna use that carbon, they wanna extract, instead of capturing carbon dioxide, they wanna use it, they wanna capture solid carbon. So there's some, you know, some chemical processes that could actually allow them to capture solid carbon uh, and then use that carbon fiber to replace steel and aluminum and, and, and aircraft and car bodies, it's the same kind of carbon that's used in, well, actually, air, you know, some aircraft are using it now, um, you know, bicycles are using it, high-end, you know, fishing equipment or boats or, you know, laptops, et cetera, already using carbon to replace uh, plastic or metal. Uh, it's really strong and light, and, you know, it, there, there, there's lots of advantages for doing that. So the advantage for Saudi Arabia pursuing hydrogen and carbon capture 
is that it keeps the oil economy intact, right? It's the same oil and gas, the same infrastructure, the same expertise. They still need their engineers, their pipelines, their drilling rigs. And if it happens quickly enough, you know, they'll even still be able to use their, their petrol stations and storage tanks, you know, at those petrol stations for hydrogen, you know, if they could, if they can develop a, a vehicle fleet that, that, that burns hydrogen instead of diesel or gasoline, uh, you know, all that infrastructure, that entire part of the economy is still valid and useful. Uh, and, you know, you, if, you, if you switch over to hydrogen, there's not even that much conversion that's necessary, you know, unlike electric vehicles, which need, you know, charging infrastructure, right? Hydrogen can be used as a transport fuel, can be used in power plants, can be used as an industrial heat source, which is probably its, you know, its most valuable use. You know, it does make pipes a little bit brittle and there, you know, there needs to be some modification, but you can already right now insert up to about 20% of uh, hydrogen into a natural gas stream with no modifications, either on the, you know, on the boiler end or to the pipes. So, you know, if you think about net zero for Saudi Arabia or UAE, in a sort of step-by-step -step process, I would envision something like this. So they might start by removing subsidies on fossil fuels and electricity so that the consumers in those countries get a strong signal to start moderating their consumption, right? I mean, this is something that those countries have been, you know, they've been doing this uh, in small fits and starts, but they, uh, you know, the, the technocrats in those countries especially are desperate to reduce fossil fuel consumption. And their huge carbon footprints are, are basically one symptom of just overconsumption of their own fossil fuel uh, uh, products, right? So, so they need to make their energy consumption just way more efficient. Uh, and if prices were higher, you know, people would go out and upgrade their air conditioning units, their pool pumps, their windows, their thermostats, uh, you know, to insulate their buildings, et cetera. Now, you know, to prevent people from rioting, you know, they, they would probably have to recast that subsidy and provide it in some other form rather than giving people cheap or free energy and, and uh, you know, electricity and water, et cetera. You know, they might have to just give them cash. Let me just um, come in there, Jim, because I want to ask you, because you made this point in a recent article uh, that you wrote with the Middle East uh, Institute's Karen Young, that the Saudis are profligate users of oil and gas. I mean, just how profligate are we talking about? So Saudi is the world's number four consumer of oil, right? It, it passed Japan uh, in 2020. So there's only three countries that use more oil than Saudi Arabia, right? That's the US and China and India, right? So that is just way, way out of proportion to the Saudi economy, right? The Saudi economy is about the world's 20th biggest. And if you look at it by in population terms, Saudi Arabia is something like number 41 uh, by, by population. The Saudis have been basically subsidizing oil for 50 years and their demand just got has gotten way out of control. I mean, it's the same in, in most of the Gulf countries, including Iran, by the way. Um, and they are, uh, you know, they're just desperate to reduce consumption at home or at least eliminate that subsidy, you know, so that there's no financial penalty for selling oil uh, and oil products at home. Yeah, well, as you say, I mean, it's a... Uh... <laughs> It's extraordinary because the population of Saudi is what, uh, 30 million. You look at the countries ahead of them, uh, the three, you know, huge populations in China and India and a very significant population in America. Um, 
You also wrote the Saudis and the Emiratis have advantages in decarbonizing their economies. What did you mean by that? Well, they they do, um, Bill. I was. Do you, would you mind if I just jump back into this? I have a um, a uh, a bit of a narrative as how they might decarbonize. You go right ahead, then. Yeah, absolutely. So, if you think about them, you know, reforming subsidies as a, as a kind of a prelude to a um, to to a decarbonization, step by step decarbonization, right? So, you might next think about building out clean electricity, so renewables and nuclear. Okay, so the UAE has been doing this. It's still small, so you know they've got their first nuclear power plant online now. Uh, they've got a you know a fair amount of renewables of solar uh, online. But in you know, 2020, the UAE was still just producing 4% of its power from, uh, from renewables and another 1% from, from nuclear. But that's growing and it's going to grow. Saudi Arabia still got a long way to go. So in, in 2020, just 0.3% of its power was clean, right? That's mainly solar. Uh, and the Saudis are still burning oil, including crude oil uh, in their power plants, uh, lots and lots of crude oil. Uh, so the rest of that, you know, sort of 99, you know, 0.7% of their power is being produced from, from burning oil and gas. So both countries are investing in a lot more solar and we'll see that grow. Uh, UAE's definitely got a head start there. Um, so they, they, they uh, you know, try to clean up the electricity sector, then they try to electrify as much of their consumption as possible, right? So this, you know, this would require a, a grid expansion and a grid upgrade, but then, you know, they could electri- start electrifying uh, transportation as well. Uh, and, and, you know, there's probably be easier to do in countries like, you know, monarchies, because, you know, if you had the ruling families switch over from Mercedes SUVs or whatever they're driving these days, Range Rovers, to electric vehicles, you know, I think they would, you'd, you'd spur a pretty quick fleet changeover, right? I mean, you know, in Dubai, the, uh, you know, the ruler there, Sheikh Mohammed drives one of those G-series Mercedes SUVs, and they're just extraordinarily popular there among, uh, you know, upper-class Emiratis. There's this sort of copycat phenomenon that occurs with vehicles over there. It makes some charging points available in parking garages and petrol stations. Uh, you know, you start electrifying public transport and then delivery vehicles and you're, you're you know, you're, you're getting your transport uh, se- sector starting to be sorted out. Most of the energy demand in the Gulf is really for cooling buildings. Right. So that's already electrified mostly. Uh, and so decarbonizing electricity would actually, uh, you know, take a lot of that load. You know, water desalination is also a really high emitter. Uh, so, you know, right now they're using this pretty energy intensive treatment called multi-stage flash or MSF, you know, switching that to, to reverse osmosis uses a lot less energy, uh, but you can also desalinate water using solar power. It's actually a really good use for, for solar energy because, you know, water is really easy to store. It's not like electricity where it's, you know, very, very difficult to store and expensive to store. You basically need to use electricity immediately. Water is, right? So, Decarbonizing the desalination is, uh, you know, is something they can do. And once you got power and water and some of the transport sorted, you're you're left with industry. And in the industry, you know, is one of the advantages they have is that their industry in the Gulf and you know Saudi Arabia and the UAE, it's all clustered together in these zones, right? So if you think about it, you know, you got the Jebel Ali Industrial Zone in Dubai, all the power plants, all the desalination plants. 
most of the big industrial plants are right there. Uh, the new Hassan coal-fired power plant in Dubai, it's going to be an enormous emitter uh, as it's completed this year. That's right next to all the other emitters, right? So if you wanted to connect them up to carbon capture, you'd be able to do that because they're, they're all right next to each other. That's a concentrated carbon emissions coming from the Jebel Ali port area. And then, you know, guess what? There is geological storage right nearby. There's de depleting oil wells all around there. Same with the Khalifa port in Al-Tawila, right across the line in Abu Dhabi. That's actually very close to Jebel Ali. You know, there's myriad power plants. There's the, the, the gargantuan Emol aluminum smelter. It's the largest single site aluminum smelter in the world. Enormous emissions right there. But, you know, again, right next to all the other emissions. So you, you capture that uh, and run it out to a depleting oil field. And, uh, and there you go. Uh, Saudi Arabia, same thing. Jubail, Yanbu, Rabig, et cetera. They've got these, you know, emissions clusters really close together. So both of these countries are really fortunate in that way that, um, you know, they've got everything clustered. You know, other, other countries do not have that. I mean, if you imagine Japan, how much more difficult it would be for, for, for a country like Japan or even the U.S. to, to uh, you know, to capture and store emissions. So, I mean, the Saudis and the Emiratis might even be able to sell uh, carbon management services to other countries, you know, who, that, that, that weren't able to capture uh, as easily. They could they could offset emissions by capturing more. But eventually, the final step of this, I think would be, you know, what I mentioned before, hydrogen, switching over to hydrogen for, especially for the industry, you know, as a heat source for the refineries, for their petrochemical plants, aluminum, glass, and fertilizer. You know, hydrogen is also a, a good fuel for, for heavy duty trucking, uh, possibly for aviation and shipping. You can use it in cars too. Uh, you know, Toyota's already making one, the Mirai. So the carbon capture and storage system, you know, would be useful before hydrogen was ready. Um, and then it would still be useful after you're using hydrogen, because if you're making hydrogen from natural gas, you'd still need to dispose of the, the carbon from turning that gas into to hydrogen. So in a nutshell, you basically raise prices, go renewable, capture the industrial emissions, and then finally build out uh, to hydrogen. Yeah, so yeah, lots of advantages there, and plus that added advantage of being authoritarian states and the rulers say, this is what we're going to do, and guess what, the folks uh, go along with it and do it. But it still strikes me, Jim, as a big challenge, you know, weaning these Gulf economies off oil revenues, and you've got to get this society that's, you know, as you pointed out, really accustomed to not bothering very much about how they consume energy, how much they consume energy, not really thinking too much about the environment. Uh, you know, that's a big challenge, but perhaps rising temperatures might help focus minds. Well, yes. Uh, so, um, I mean, they, they do have, look, I mean, if I could just mention the advantages, there are some advantages, you know, so being autocratic is, is an advantage, right? But also being rich uh, is an advantage, right? So both of these countries, uh, especially now with oil prices high, you know, I mean, it sounds kind of ironic that, um, you know, that they're going to sell more oil to decarbonize, but that's basically the uh, the recipe. Autocratic governance is, uh, you know, I mean, they don't, I mean, you know, look at the U.S., right? We have been going, trying to, uh, you know, move climate legislation through for more than two decades. We've got very little to show for it. Those countries, I think, can get moving more quickly than we can. You know, then they have, you know, no shortage of brain power and capability, you know, in Saudi Arabia, if you think about Aramco, you know, they've got the, 
the same expertise that's you know needed for carbon capture and hydrogen, very similar to what you need in the in the oil business anyway. Uh, you know they've got you know Capsarc and Kaust and KFUPM right, so the uh, think tanks and, and and technical universities producing you know really smart uh, engineers and analysts right. So, but another major advantage for these countries is that they can still export oil technically, right? So they don't have to kill off their oil production businesses because the exports don't count on their carbon budget. So they can still claim that they are net zero if the combustion of that oil and gas takes place somewhere else, right? So yeah, so whatever they burn inside their borders, they've got to capture the emissions or swap out to something cleaner. But as long as the rest of the world is still buying oil, they can still export it and claim that they are net zero, right? So a little bit of a, a conundrum there. You know, it, it's almost as if their net zero goals are dependent on the rest of the world not reaching a net zero goal. So that the, a slower energy transition, if you will. Ultimately, you know, at a global level, is that going to work? I don't know. The jury's out on that one. Mm. Mm. But just to come back to my question about, you know, getting those societies to think differently, because as you say, uh, fuel subsidized, electricity subsidized, mm. uh, water uh, wastage is, is enormous. You look at some of the projects that the Saudis are engaged in, in terms of greening uh, uh, Riyadh and the various other big, big projects. <sighs> Do you think that they can make that kind of shift to get people on board? Because, you know, it's not popular, as you know, in America, when oil prices go up at the pump, people get upset. It's true. I mean, it was one of the one of the biggest triggers for uh, for rioting is, uh, is, you know, fuel price reforms right around the world. It happens all the time. I mean, you know, we just saw it in, in Kazakhstan. Right. I mean, so. People, uh, particularly the poor, you know, who spend most of their, uh, you know, a larger portion of their income on their energy purchases uh, are not happy when they lose energy subsidies or when energy prices rise. Um, You know, it's the third rail of politics here in the U.S. So, you know, the Biden administration right now under a lot of pressure over energy prices. So, no, there's no, uh, uh, you know, accomplishment to to do that. And there's going to have to be some you know, some, some renovation to that social contract that energy has been a part of, you know, they're going to have to swap out something else for the energy component uh, in that. But, you know, they need to do this uh, anyway, you know, for, you know, as, as you alluded to, for the livability of their geography, the world is getting hotter. That region is already, you know, on, on the front lines of, uh, of heat stress. It can't stand much more growth in high temperatures in the summer. I mean, if you just think about the Hajj, you've got these you know, millions of pilgrims coming into Saudi Arabia, mainly elderly. They spend hours and hours outdoors, often in the full sun, uh, in and around one of the world's hottest cities, Mecca. When the Hajj comes around in midsummer again, in a, you know, in a, in a decade or two, I mean, how are the Saudis going to manage that? I mean, it's this part of the Saudi identity that's under threat from climate change. So you know, climate change is a big deal. The, the physical aspects of climate change are, are, are a big deal. And they may not yet be manifesting themselves in, in policymaking 
in the kingdom or in the UAE, et cetera. But they, I think they will. I think they're going to have to at some point. Mm, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned the UAE a couple of times. I, I, I get the sense that the UAE has been more adept at getting its head around net zero. I mean, at Glasgow, the Emiratis knocked 10 years off the Saudi commitment. They, they said 2050. Um, is it just that it's an easier ask for the UAE or are they just better at it? Well, UAE's, of course, had a huge head start. You know, Dubai has demonstrated how to diversify a, a, you know, a once oil-dependent economy, right? Dubai's oil gave out a long time ago. And interestingly, it's managed to do that and staying just as autocratic as everybody else, right? So Dubai figured out a way to thrive. Uh, they build up a big array of non-oil sectors, you know, trade and logistics, tourism, banking, light manufacturing, shipping. Uh, and airlines, right? So they're getting, you know, lots of copycat endeavors all around the Middle East, you know, including in the Gulf, uh, looking at Dubai as this, you know, the first and only successful post-oil economy in the Middle East, right? So uh, it sort of forged the way. But another advantage that the UAE has, rather than being just a, a first mover on diversification, which you need to do to protect your economy if you're worried about oil rents, uh, you know, petering out in the future, so that's advantage one. Advantage two is that the UAE has is its massive airline sector, right? If you think about, you know, Etihad and Emirates and some of the other airlines there, that's one of its biggest emitters. That does not count on its national tally. Uh, so they can, they can still claim that they're carbon neutral uh, and have all these carbon emitting aircraft you know, flying around the world because international air travel goes into a separate account. It's overseen by the UN. It doesn't go on the UAE's tally, right? So same thing with international shipping, right? That's also a really big part of the UAE economy. That does not count on their national carbon budget. So, um, you know, Saudi Arabia does not have that advantage to the same extent. Yeah, it has international flights, but it also has a lot, a lot of domestic flights. So it's going to be harder for the Saudis. They're going to have to decarbonize av aviation or offset a lot of aviation emissions. So that's a, you know, they've got a much bigger geography. They're going to have more transport emissions overall. Well, one other thing, Bill, you mentioned Glasgow, you know, and it's kind of, a, you know, an interesting point that uh, if you remember the news uh, uh, coming out that, you know, this Saudi Arabia was one of the countries that was watering down that final communique. Basically, you know, they were hedging on subsidy reforms and a couple of other things. You know, I think it's pretty clear that they are still intent on keeping fossil fuels in the energy mix, uh, and they're going to fight hard to do that. Uh, and they've been doing that all along at the at, at, at these uh, uh, climate summits. But they're also signaling pretty hard with net zero. I mean, these two things almost sound like they're contradictory. Um, and I've heard, you know, you hear some accusations that, okay, the Saudis are, you know, their net zero commitment is basically greenwashing. And I kind of disagree with that. You know, I think, um, you know, there, there's at least two other reasons for them to do that. Probably three, I guess, if you count the actual climate damage they want to avoid. The first one is they can use this net zero commitment as pretty strong political cover to make some domestic reforms at home, particularly as, you know, as we've been discussing on subsidies and on their internal 
energy consumption. They desperately want to reduce their, their consumption of their own crude oil and, and, and export that rather than consuming it at home. Uh, and so this net zero commitment gives them a, a pretty strong goal to, to point to that to deflect some of the blame you know, off of Mohammed bin Salman and the, and, and the leadership. Um, but the second reason, and probably the main reason, is for more global influence. I think, you know, the Saudis have been kind of dismissed as obstructionists in climate talks. Uh, and I think the Saudis, they, they want to get, they want to be key partners uh, in, in these discussions and have some influence on the path that the world takes towards the, the energy transition. Right. So the Saudis don't want the world to switch over to renewables and clean electricity uh, and then electrify absolutely everything, even though they don't mind doing this at home because it saves them. Uh, you know, they can they can export more fossil fuels. But if everybody, if the entire world did that, followed that program, there would be much lower demand uh, uh, for oil. So they they really want the world to use hydrogen and CCS. They want hydrogen and cap carbon capture and storage to be part of the decarbonization, uh, you know, an energy transition plan. And it keeps oil and gas in the mix uh, for much longer. You convert them to, uh, you know, to other types of energy. And actually, you know, here in Houston, you know, where I'm based, that's a very similar strategy, right? So you know, I don't know if you noticed, but this year, you know, Houston declared itself the energy transition capital of the world, rather than it used to call itself just the energy capital of the world. And there's a huge payoff for this for the Middle East and, you know, all oil exporting countries and, you know, Houston included, uh, because oil and gas is really the most profitable side of the energy industry. So, mm -hmm. so there's, there's, there's more to it than just, uh, you know, or, or the greenwashing accusation, I think, kind of falls flat. Yeah, and I was just thinking, was uh, was it the uh, Saudi oil minister who said the last barrel of oil pumped out of the ground in the world will be Saudi oil? <laughs> so, yeah, the last two oil ministers have said that. Okay. Yeah. Um, but look, Jim, the global climate clock is ticking away. Can the Gulf hydrocarbons producers do enough and do it quickly enough to make the kind of difference that, that the world needs? Well, I mean, the jury's out, right? So first of all, the jury's out on, you know, whether carbon capture and hydrogen can do it. I mean, there's a lot of doubts, right? So there's been some recent research that shows that, um, you know, if you're making hydrogen from natural gas, you know, the, the, the research paper that I, I, I read was based on U.S. Uh, making the so-called blue hydrogen from natural gas, that it's not as clean as, uh, you know, as proponents say, and that actually it's, it, you, you'd be better off just burning, burning natural gas un, unabated than, than making it into hydrogen and then sequestering the carbon. So there's a lot of um, doubts, a lot of questions about this strategy to use uh, a hydrogen and CCS. But the, you know, the, the climate is being damaged, you know, as we discuss this, you know, the damage is here now, it's getting worse. Uh, and, you know, these, these oil producing countries need uh, climate damage relief just as much as, as the rest of us, right? And I, I think it's great that these governments are making commitments and they're finally taking climate action seriously. So we should start by giving them credit for taking such a bold step and then follow up and let's, let's you know, let's verify what they're doing and, uh, you know, assist them along the way. So I think, you know, the rest of the world... Uh, should be, uh, you know, encouraging this and doing whatever we can to, 
to help them reach it. Jim, thank you very much. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be back. You've been listening to the Herb Digest podcast, and my guest today was the Baker Institute, Jim Crane. In addition to our podcasts, which I'm pleased to say have a rapidly growing global audience, the Herb Digest newsletter features the very best of mean analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.